Our second readings are from 1 Kings chapter 22 and from Daniel chapter 4. So 1 Kings 22, 6 to 23, these are God's words. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go against remote Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of Yahweh besides that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, Micaiah the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Fetch quickly Micaiah the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes in an open place at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah the son of Hena'anah made him horns of iron and said, Thus saith Yahweh, with these shalt thou push the Syrians until they be consumed. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to remote Gilead and prosper, for Yahweh will deliver it into the hand of the king. And the messenger that went to call Micaiah spoke unto him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak thou good. Micaiah said, As Yahweh liveth, what Yahweh saith unto me, that will I speak. And when he was come to the king, the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go to remote Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And he answered him, Go up and prosper, and Yahweh will deliver it into the hand of the king. And the king said unto him, How many times shall I charge thee that thou speak unto me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And Yahweh said, These have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said, Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell thee that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him, on his right hand and on his left. And Yahweh said, Who shall entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at remote Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before Yahweh and said, I, I will entice him. And Yahweh said unto him, How so? And he said, I will go forth and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt entice him and shalt prevail. Go forth and do so. Now therefore behold, Yahweh hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and Yahweh hath spoken evil concerning thee. Now Daniel chapter 4 starting at verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off its branches, shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of its roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from a man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, and the demand by the word of the holy ones, 
to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the lowest of men. These are God's words. Father, thank you for the word that you have spoken to us. Please send your spirit to help me rightly divide it and to distribute it to each of us as he has need. Plant it in our hearts, water it, make it grow, that it may bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Amen. You may be seated. In our study of worship in the church, we have learned a great many things so far. We have learned that the church is a fractal, self-governing body ruled exclusively by Christ. We have discovered certain fundamental elements without which a church fails to properly be a church, especially things like gathering physically on the Lord's Day, instructing the members of the church in the full counsel of God, and discipling them to apply that counsel to all of life. We have seen that the church's ministry is actually the substance of the shadows that are modeled in temple worship, which ended in table fellowship with God, and that we have this fellowship by entering into heaven itself through Christ and the Holy Spirit to share communion with him. And we have looked very closely at how to worship. What are the rules? We've seen that God provides patterns to arrange our worship in a way that mimics and echoes the heavenly reality, and that by expressing and embodying these spiritual patterns, we actually enter into them in some mysterious way. There's a mysterious resonance that is set up between the physical and the spiritual world. The Lord's service teaches us how to participate in heavenly patterns so that we can embody those patterns in our own everyday service fulfilling thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now in all of this, we have been building up an understanding of who we are as a church and what we are doing in worship, and we have certainly seen why each individual piece of what we do matters. But what we have not yet done in any complete way is relate it back to the gospel of the kingdom. We have certainly seen how worship brings us into communion with God in the heavenly court and how it should send us back out as his ambassadors and foot soldiers into the world. But we have not really thought about how this communion and commission relates to what God is doing in the world. We have gotten hints, certainly, But we have not put together how worship connects with the rulership of Christ, with the expansion and advance of his kingdom, with him putting all of his enemies under his feet in order to receive the dominion that he has been given. And we've not really seen what our own place is in that. What is happening in the heavenly court, not just to join Christ to his people, but to actually advance his kingdom. That is basically what I want to answer in the next couple of weeks, starting today. Not only is the answer to this question quite alien and even confronting, but the question itself is not one that we tend to think about asking. What direct connection could there be between Lord's Day worship and Christ's kingdom going forth into the world? One happens inside the church, the other outside. One is heaven-oriented and the other is earth-oriented. One is about enjoying peace, 
through instruction and feasting and fellowship. And the other is about bringing and establishing peace through spiritual warfare. And these seem like very separate things. Communion versus cosmology, essentially. What do these things really have to do with each other? To even make sense of the question, we need to consider a very different angle to the heavenly court than we have looked at so far. And yet this is actually perhaps the dominant perspective that Scripture provides on what happens in God's throne room. Most of what we have seen about heaven so far has been indirect. It has been through the lens of the earthly reflections that God has provided in the Scriptures, especially in the temple worship. We've actually seen relatively little of heaven directly. We know that we come into the heavenly court, that there are myriads of angels around us in festal array, but what is going on with those angels? Why are they there? What are they up to? You know, we know they worship God, but if we turn to other parts of scripture, we see that they are doing a lot else besides simply prostrating or singing as we think of worship. The overarching theme of Scripture on the rare occasions that it depicts heaven directly is actually something much closer to judgment. So what I mean is, there's a consistent pattern of an issue being raised in the heavenly court and then debated among its members and resolved and someone is sent out or commissioned to take care of implementing the solution that has been decided. And the clearest depiction that we have of this is in our first passage today where Micaiah describes exactly a scene like this to King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat. We see a similar kind of scene in the book of Job in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. You remember the sons of God come into the heavenly throne room and Satan comes in with them and he contends with God about Job. And God then renders a judgment and sends Satan out. He essentially commissions Satan to do what he will with Job, giving him specific instructions on how he may go about that. So again, an issue is raised. It is debated briefly. A resolution is passed, and Satan is commissioned to go out and effect that resolution. In Daniel chapter 4, The reason that I had us read this passage alongside 1 Kings 22 is that this is where we see the other end of this sequence. We see the implementation itself. We learn that there has been a resolution handed down, that Nebuchadnezzar will be judged by being given the mind of a beast and so forth. And this is, it says, a decree of the watchers. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones. This is just another term for the angels who are involved in making these kinds of decisions. Now, I don't think that it means that they made the decision and God didn't, but rather that they proposed this way of handling it and God approved it. Or maybe he just told them to figure it out and they had to do it as best as seemed best to them. He gave them some leeway. We don't really know, and it doesn't have to work exactly the same way every time, just like it doesn't work exactly the same way every time In earthly governments, a government on earth can make decisions and implement them in different ways depending on the need. Sometimes a king will decide without getting input of what needs to be done. Sometimes he'll get counsel from others. Of course, God doesn't need advice, but he does love to rule with his people rather than for them. And sometimes he will even outsource to a committee, as it were. 
It shouldn't be any surprise that things work on earth as they do in heaven, should it? Now, there are many other depictions like this in Scripture. The ones that I chose are just the very clearest ones. But once you know to look for this pattern, you'll actually be able to see it in many places. For example, have you ever wondered who God is talking to in Genesis chapter 11? Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower, this is Babel, which the sons of men built. And Yahweh said, behold, they are one people. They all have one language, and this is what they begin to do, and now nothing will be withheld from them, which they purpose to do. Come, let us go down, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So he comes down to the tower. Obviously, there's a bit of humor there because the tower is supposed to reach into heaven, but God has to come down to see it. But this language is actually related or repeated in another place that will become very significant by the end of this sermon. That's Genesis 18. Yahweh said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. Now, what is going on in this case? Again, God is relating to his people as one of them. It's not like he doesn't really know what's happening in Sodom. But a cry has come up to him. Well, from whom? Where does this cry come from? Who is crying to God? Well, who comes to God in his heavenly court to raise an issue? The angels do. Now, this may be referring to prayer. We certainly see, and we will see next time, we'll look at this in more detail in Revelation, the prayers of the saints being, but they're brought to God by angels. So it doesn't matter. It's still angels. The angels bring the cry to God. We've seen in previous sermons how angels are involved in the affairs of the earth, even involved in the workings of the natural world. So is it any surprise that these angels report back to God when something needs his attention? Certainly, Sodom and Gomorrah needed his attention. Now, this brings us to the key point that I want you to see that is sitting behind each of these depictions, each of these examples of the heavenly council. Notice that all of them, every time we see the heavenly courts function, they're dealing with events here on earth. This is really important. This is foundational. We have to get this solidly in place before we can understand how the church fits in, because the church is here on earth. Every time we see the heavenly court or the heavenly council, the divine council, they are resolving an issue, but that issue needs to be resolved not in heaven, because that's where God's will is already done. It has to be resolved down here on earth, where God's will must still be imposed, must still be enforced, where sin must still be judged and corrected. God has a council of angels who work with him to achieve this. These are the celestial beings that are typically described as the heavenly host. This is what Micaiah calls them, God's heavenly army. And as an aside, it isn't completely clear whether each and every one of them is involved in the heavenly council. And I know that people will have this question, so I, I will answer it now. I don't really know. We do know from another council scene that we'll look at next time in Daniel 7, that the heavenly host is beyond reckoning. Like, Daniel looks at them and he can't count them. There are just too many. And how such a large number of angels could all discuss something simultaneously, well, who knows? 
but one supposes that spiritual beings need not be constrained by physical logistics. Anyway, the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us very much about these guys, whether every member of the heavenly host is also a member of God's council, and if so, what that hierarchy looks like. We do know that there are archangels, which loosely translated just means angels in charge, but we don't get a lot of fine-grained detail. It isn't important. The key takeaway for us is that there is a heavenly council, and it is closely involved in the affairs of the earth. They monitor what is going on. That's why they're called watchers in Daniel 4. And they raise issues with God when the heavenly court convenes. And they debate how to resolve those issues. And then they go out and they implement the resolutions that God approves. So far, so good. Angels meet in the heavenly court to do the work of governing the world. That's pretty interesting and important to know, I guess. It's a a key piece of biblical cosmology, but what does it have to do with our worship? What does it have to do with the gospel of the kingdom? How does it fit in with Jesus being the ruler of the world and with us especially being his body? We can only begin to answer this question today. We really need to do an entire other lap around the Old Testament to get all of the pieces in place. Because there is a second foundational idea alongside the mere existence of the Heavenly Council that we need to add before we can see how the gospel changes things, how the church changes things. What we're really heading toward, what we're really heading toward is. is answering when the church enters the heavenly court, when we come into the heavenly court in worship. What does that have to do with the counsel of God, if anything? And we can't fully answer that question today. There is too much to look at. But we can look at how the Old Testament plants a seed of the answer, and then we'll follow it up next week to look at the ground in which that seed grows and how it flowers in the New Testament. But today, let's just look at how a couple of significant human beings relate to the Heavenly Council in the Old Testament, because that plants the seed of how the church relates to it in the present age. And we will get to, the, we'll, we'll get to a satisfying conclusion before next week, I promise. So until now, I have deliberately left out One place in scripture, which is perhaps a very clear example of the heavenly council pattern. I said I picked these examples because they're the clearest, but there is another clear one, which I haven't mentioned. It's a little bit more abbreviated than the one in our reading from 1 Kings 22, but it is quite unmistakable. There aren't that many places in the Bible where we directly see the heavenly throne room, so you may have already thought of this, and you may have even wondered, why did I not use that as an example? Can you think what it is? When Isaiah is brought into God's heavenly court, we read this. Isaiah 6, 8-9. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Now this is the exact pattern that we have already seen. It's just compressed way down. God asks who will do something that needs resolving. Then he picks a volunteer and commissions him with specific instructions. But the reason that I left this until now is because of who the volunteer is. 
that volunteer breaks the pattern that we've seen because it's not an angel. And this is what shows us that some human beings do have something to do with God's heavenly counsel. They are brought into the court and commissioned to resolve a situation that is under debate. And when this happens, that human being is given a title. He is called a prophet. In fact, Jeremiah tells us that it is the definition of a true prophet, that he has stood in God's counsel. Look at Jeremiah 23, verses 16 to 22. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They speak you, that they teach you vanity. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of Yahweh. They say continually unto them that despise me, Yahweh hath said, ye shall have peace. And unto everyone that walketh in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. For who hath stood in the counsel of Yahweh that he should see and hear his word? Who hath heeded my word and heard? Behold, the tempest of Yahweh, even his wrath is gone forth. Yea, a whirling tempest, it shall burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of Yahweh shall not return until he have executed, until he have performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days he shall understand it perfectly. I sent not these prophets, yet they ran. I spoke not unto them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then had they caused my people to hear my words and had turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. So according to God, speaking in Jeremiah, if these had been true prophets, they would have stood in his counsel in the heavenly court. And this means that when Jeremiah was commissioned, he must have stood in God's heavenly court. But do you remember the commissioning of Jeremiah? Where do we see the heavenly council there? Let me refresh your memory. Jeremiah chapter 1, the word of Yahweh came unto me. So there's the word of Yahweh that was just mentioned in the court. The word of Yahweh came unto me saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I have appointed thee a prophet unto the nations. And then I said, Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, I know not how to speak, for I am a child. But Yahweh said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for to whomsoever I shall send thee, thou shalt go. And whatsoever I shall command thee, shalt thou speak. Be not afraid because of them, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith Yahweh. Then Yahweh put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down and to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. It's Jeremiah, four, uh, Jeremiah 1, 4 to 10. Now, this doesn't look like heavenly council imagery exactly, does it? And yet there are clues here that we can piece together to see that this actually is a divine council scene. The first thing to notice is that the word of Yahweh is a physical presence whom Jeremiah addresses as Yahweh. This is the word of Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, the pre-incarnate son who we saw when we looked at John's prologue. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, we looked at that nearly a year ago, so I will forgive you if you do not remember it very well. What we learned there was that the word of Yahweh appears in the Old Testament not as a voice in the ear, like we tend to imagine, but as a person. And you see in this passage, he touches Jeremiah's mouth. 
The same kind of thing happens with Abram in Genesis 15. The word comes to him in a vision and takes him outside. And it happens again in 1 Samuel 3. The word of Yahweh is uh, he comes in visions and he stands near Samuel's bed and calls out to Samuel. The word is with Yahweh and he is Yahweh and he appears in embodied form. Now this may be a vision or it may be a physical body. It doesn't really matter. The point is that Jeremiah can see him as a person. And Jeremiah explains this further in chapter 23, quite explicitly, if you don't just skip over the language, by telling us that unlike all the false prophets that he is competing with, he had seen this word. That is the word he uses. If you had seen and heard the word, and what he, uh, that when he did, he was standing in God's counsel. So when a man is commissioned as a prophet, the word of Yahweh stands with him in the council of God. They are brought into the royal courtroom, but it isn't necessarily stated, it certainly isn't stated in Jeremiah 1, that angels are present. It's just assumed that they are, because angels are always present when God's there. It's the same as when in Exodus, at Sinai, nowhere do we read about angels being involved in any way. And yet when Moses recollects the giving of the law later, in Deuteronomy 33.2, he says, Yahweh came from Sinai, and he dawned upon them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with a myriad holy ones, and his right hand a fiery law for them. Who are the holy ones? Well, obviously, I mean, we know who the holy ones are. Psalm 89.5-7 describes them as a council in the skies. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3.19 that the law was put in place through angels. You don't read that in Exodus, but you do read it elsewhere in Scripture. Stephen says in Acts 7.53, the Jews received the law as delivered by angels. Hebrews 2.2 says it was a message declared by angels. It was just taken for granted. It was so obvious that it didn't require explanation. It didn't require you to actually write down, and there were angels there, unless it was actually important to the point that the author of Scripture wanted to make. And I think that often angels are not mentioned for the very same reason that Paul has to write the book of Colossians. So in the same way, it was taken as obvious that a prophet was someone who had been brought into God's presence, had seen the word of Yahweh, and therefore had participated in the divine council. This is according to the passage that we just read in Jeremiah 23. It is the defining feature of prophetic calling. How do you know if someone is a true prophet according to the office, uh, continuing the office of Moses? By whether he has been in the presence of the word of Yahweh. And where the word is, so is his divine counsel. Now, remember how I mentioned God coming down to investigate Sodom. I mentioned that was going to become important. This is where it becomes important. Do you remember any other features about that story? Remember how there were two angels with him? Let me read that in Genesis 18 for you. 18, uh, verses 16 to 26. So the men, that is the angels, rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him to the end that he may command his sons and his household after him, that they may keep the way of Yahweh to do righteousness and justice, to the end that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And Yahweh said, 
Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. And the men journeyed from thence and came toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before Yahweh. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou consume the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou consume and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, that to the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And Yahweh said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sake. Now we know how this continues. I won't read the whole thing. Abraham basically debates God. Uh, he, he kind of bargains God down almost in order to argue for a different resolution to what he perceives is about to happen to Sodom. Now, he's ultimately not successful because there just aren't enough righteous people. But he is angling for a different resolution. And God enters into the debate. He doesn't tell Abraham to sit down and be quiet and let the grown-ups do their thing. He includes Abraham in his counsel. He has two angels with him, and he includes Abraham as a third. Abraham gets to join God in this inner circle. When you have the idea of the heavenly council in view, Abraham's conversation with God takes on a whole new dimension. He isn't just bargaining with God. He is being included in God's council and really in the very inner circle of God's council. The two most trusted angels plus Abraham. Incidentally, this is why scripture calls Abraham a friend of God. Friend in the Old Testament is a technical term. It is an advisor to the king. Then the angels come to Sodom to test how they are received to see whether the city is wicked or righteous. And it doesn't go very well and we know the rest. But that is the seed of human involvement in the divine council. The way that we see human beings included in the Old Testament. But it is only a seed. It grows and it develops in the New Testament in truly incredible ways that we will only just start to touch on here. To begin to see this, let me ask you, and I ask this by way of closing, who are the prophets of the New Testament? They were the apostles and the disciples, some of them. But did the apostles have encounters with angels? Did they see God's heavenly counsel? Not that we know of, right? But why? What gives? Well, how can they be prophets if they weren't included in the heavenly council? It's obvious, if you think about it. They didn't need to be taken up into heaven. Heaven had come down. Now, how many apostles were there? How many apostles did Jesus keep around him no matter what? We know there was an inner circle. There was Peter, James, and John, three apostles. And then there were another, another nine for an upper tier of 12. Luke 9, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them forth to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And we don't tend to think of this, but in fact, there were more than just the 12. Luke 10. Now after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others. And sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself was about to come. 
And he said unto them, The harvest indeed is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no wallet, no shoes, and salute no man on the way. And into whatsoever house ye shall enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon him. But if not, it shall return to you again. And in that same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house, and into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go out into the streets thereof and say, Even the dust from your city that cleaveth to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this that the kingdom of God is come nigh. I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Does this not remind you of Genesis 18 and 19 with God bringing his angels along with him to investigate Sodom? Jesus sends out these angels, these disciples, to test each city of Israel to find out of what spirit they are, whether they are wicked or righteous, in exactly the way that he sent angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. And at the end, he specifically likens what they are doing to the angels investigating Sodom. I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. It's not an idle reference to just indicate that it'd be very wicked for these cities to reject his disciples. He is rather sending his disciples to do the same thing that God sent the angels of Genesis 18 and 19 to do. So what does this mean? It means that the divine counsel is right there in the pages of the New Testament. It's just that instead of being made up of angels with human beings only occasionally being included, now it is made up entirely of human beings. Now, I don't mean that these human beings replaced all the angels in heaven. And they were still there too. What I mean is, Jesus, the word of Yahweh, comes down to earth and he gathers around him the very beginnings of the church as an earthly, a human, divine council. And he sends them out to do the work that was previously given to the angels in heaven. And he gives them a prayer to pray that says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is what the connection is to the church and to our worship. When we enter the heavenly court in worship, we are entering as members of the divine council. Which should give us a lot to think about next week as we ask just what exactly divine council members are meant to do, are authorized to do, and what that means for a small, humble church like Redwood. Let us sing our next hymn, Mighty Lord, Extend Your Kingdom. How appropriate, Jared.